0: The reading today is from Luke 1, verses 67 to 80. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation, through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is God's word.
1: Good morning. Let me add my welcome. If we haven't met, my name's James. I'm one of the apprentices here. It's lovely to see you. Um, And if you have your Bibles, do keep them open at Luke chapter 1, and let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you haven't remained silent, but that you have spoken, and that we can come and we can hear your words. And Father, I pray that your Spirit would help us to understand the the words of Luke chapter 1 and help us to understand what they mean for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing that always seems to get a lot of media coverage over the Christmas period is the Christmas adverts. Um, I don't know if you've seen them personally. I don't get too excited by them, um, even if they do have lonely penguins like the John Lewis advert this year. But one advert that did catch my attention was the Sainsbury's advert. Um, For those who haven't seen it, the Sainsbury's advert takes us back a 100 years to the trenches of the First World War. And we get quite movingly this this account of the Christmas truce. So you see how the soldiers leave the, uh, the trenches and exchange presents across no man's land. And rather than screaming, they sing carols and they play a game of football in the middle of the trenches. And you just get this tiny glimpse of peace in the middle of a brutal conflict. And we find those sorts of adverts really moving. Because we all know that peace is so hard to come by. So you look around the world today and you see wars everywhere. And even within our own relationships, we know that peace is hard. I'd be surprised if anyone here this morning would say they're totally at peace in every relationship that they have. That's why we find adverts that present this tiny glimpse of peace so moving. It presents the world as we would love it to be. But it also raises this rather unsettling question. Is lasting peace possible? Is lasting peace possible? And this morning, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, these verses we just had read for us, and we're going to see that lasting peace is possible because of God's mercy shown to us in Jesus. Lasting peace is possible because of God's mercy. So these verses come at the end of uh, chapter 1 of Luke's historical account of the life of Jesus. Um, A song of praise by an old man called Zechariah, who's uh, just become a father for the first time in his old age. His wife, Elizabeth, has just miraculously given birth. And Zechariah sings a song of praise to God. But surprisingly, Zechariah's praise, it doesn't center around his son. It centers around the son who's soon to be born, Jesus. And verse 67 tells us it's more than just a song of praise. It's a prophecy. That is, it tells us something that's about to be accomplished in the future, something that Jesus is going to do. He's going to explain to us how Jesus is going to bring peace. As we saw earlier in the children's talk, verse 68 is really the key verse. The rest of the verses are just an expansion on that. Verse 68 says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. God hasn't remained distant. He has come down to us. And he's come down with the purpose of redeeming us, rescuing, liberating, buying us back. Jesus has come to bring peace. And this morning we're going to see two aspects of that peace. If you like, we're going to see the external aspect of that peace and the internal aspect of that peace. How Jesus is going to bring peace. You'll find the two points printed on your service sheets. Verse 69 to 74. Freedom from enemies so that we can serve without fear. And forgiveness of sins. So we can walk in peace. So two aspects of the peace that Jesus is going to bring, external and internal. So firstly, verses 69 to 75, external threats to peace. And if you just glance through those verses, um, particularly look down with me at verse 71, you'll see it says, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then again, verse 74 to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. So the problem here in these verses is enemies, external threats to peace. And God's people were in need of rescuing from these enemies. And no doubt as the people heard Zechariah say these words, they would have been thinking of the Roman armies that occupied their lands. They would be thinking of the Roman governors who ruled their regions. They'll be thinking of the Roman Caesar to whom they paid taxes. See, the Jews weren't free. They were under the control of the Romans. And until the Romans were gone, they could never have true peace. I guess it's quite hard for us to understand exactly the situation facing the Jews. I mean, we're probably not under enemy occupation, or probably never have been under enemy occupation. But I remember when I was studying for my A-levels history, I went across to uh, Budapest in Hungary. And you get this... Um, We went on this tour with a group of us from our school, a tour of a museum, and this man who had lived in Hungary his whole life was telling us about how his country, his beloved country, had been occupied. I don't think I'm ever going to forget the bitterness, even anger, in his voice as he explained how the Nazis and then the Soviets had just ruled his nation for years and years and years. See, enemy occupation is terrible. And he said there can never be peace until the enemies are gone. And that's the case for the Jews. But not only is it political, it's also religious. So if you look down at verses 74 and 75, we read that they need to be rescued from the hand of their enemies to enable us to serve him without fear. That's God without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And this implies that at the moment they weren't able to serve God without fear. That is, they were afraid to serve God. So why is that? Why were the people afraid to serve God? Well, the Jews were God's people. He'd rescued them from the slavery in Egypt. He'd brought them into the land. And God had said, you should be visibly different. You should be separate from the people. But if they're living under Roman occupation, if they've been assimilated into the Roman Empire, how could they be different? How could they be different like God wanted them to be? And God had also established laws. He'd said, this is how you should live, as my people but how could they live as God wanted them to live if the Romans were the ones in charge of the law? See, this was a religious disaster as well for the Jews. Had this, uh, this dimension whereby they couldn't serve God without being afraid. And at first glance, this situation seems far removed from our situation. So as I say, we're not under enemy occupation. If you're a Christian in the UK, it's not particularly difficult to serve God without fear, is it? Of course, for our brothers and sisters living in Nigeria and in Syria and in Iraq at the moment, actually these verses do resonate significantly for them, as they, in their day-to-day experience, know what it is to face persecution, even death, for serving God. But when we realise that the enemies in Luke 1, all they are are people who stop Christians serving God without fear, they're people who make us afraid to serve God, when you realise that, then actually... There are lots of people external to us who would make us afraid. So being afraid of what the boss is going to say, the implications for our career, if we choose to take a stand on an ethical issue that the Bible says something about. Or being afraid of exclusion from our friends because, well, we won't drink as much as them or we won't gossip with them. Being afraid of being caught on the wrong side of popular opinion, as put forward by the national press, For some, just even telling friends and family that we're Christians. That can be hard. That makes us afraid. See, we don't face physical threats, but they may be verbal, social. And until those threats are gone, we'll never be able to serve God without fear. There'll never be true peace. And it's only when we understand this that we can join with Zechariah's joy as he says the words of verse 69. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, don't be confused by the metaphor, horn. It just refers to a person, someone who's going to come from the family line of David. He was the great king of Israel. And we know this isn't referring to baby John, Zechariah's baby, because Zechariah was from that line of Aaron. That's a different line. So he's talking about someone who's going to come from David's line. And in chapter 1 of Luke, we see that's going to be Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes from David's line. And in the Bible, a horn just symbolizes strength. So think of the horn of a rhinoceros. A horn symbolizes strength. So for someone to be the horn of salvation is someone who comes with the strength to bring salvation, the strength to save. In fact, to help me get into the mood as I was preparing, I went onto YouTube and I, I did a search for stampeding rhinos. Uh, you can tell me if that counts as research or procrastination. but um, So I looked for stampeding rhinos, and, uh, and you see these amazingly strong creatures as they stampede down the hills, kicking up dust as they go. And they're this, these horns on the front, and you know they're very strong. But it struck me, the perspective that you look from the perspective that you look onto that picture, uh, depends on your response to it, affects your response, sorry. So if you're looking like I was as an outside observer, well, they're strong, but it's kind of detached from you. But if I were to say that at the bottom of the hill there's a baby rhino about to be torn in part by lions, from the baby's rhino's perspective, to look up and see the stampeding rhinos with their horns coming to rescue, suddenly that's personal. It's a personal strength. And that matters a lot from that situation. And that's the situation Zechariah's writing from. He's writing from a position where his people are in great danger from external enemies. And he looks up and he sees a horn of salvation. and So he rejoices. But what will Jesus do? What will his salvation be like? Well, put simply, verse 74 and 75 tells us, He's going to rescue us from those enemies so that we can serve without fear in holiness and righteousness. And this is precisely what God has promised to do throughout the whole Old Testament. So if you just look down, you'll see two important names appear in those verses, and God has spoken to both. So verses 69 and 70, we're told it's someone in the house of his servant David, as he, that's God, said long ago through his holy prophets And then again, verse 72 and 73, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. So you get David and you get Abraham. God has spoken to both of them, and he said something about what this uh, Jesus is going to accomplish. Now, we're not going to look in any detail about how Jesus accomplishes these two great promises, but just put simply, David, God spoke to David and said, I'm going to raise a king for you who's going to be like you, but he's going to be better, because He's going to kick out all of the enemies and the land is going to be at peace. That's the promise to David. You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, I'm going to raise up a king and he's going to bring peace forever. And then to Abraham, this is Genesis 17. God had promised that his people would be able to go into a land and in that land there would be blessing. They would live under God's blessing. There'd be rest. So a king and a land where there's rest. And in Zechariah, we see that these, in Zechariah's prophecy, we see that these two promises converge together in Jesus. Jesus is the king who is coming, who's going to bring rest to his people so they can live in the land under God's blessing. It's just a perfect picture of peace. That's what God says Jesus is going to accomplish. This reminds me of uh, one of those scenes at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I-, I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings, the final movie, The Return of the King. It basically details how King Aragorn is going to rise up and he's going to expel all of the enemies from the land. So that the nation, called Gondor at the time, that they're just going to have peace from their enemies. And so throughout the film you see this battle of good and evil going on to- throughout. And as the battle goes on, Finally, Aragorn rises and takes his place on the throne. He expels the enemies. And there's this coronation scene at the end where he's crowned king. And there's peace, perfect peace. And what Zechariah is saying is that Jesus is just going to be so much greater than that because he's going to bring peace to the real world. There's going to be peace when he becomes king. Now, at this point, we need to stop and just think for a few moments about what this rescue means for us. Because Zechariah spoke these words, and he was looking forward to the birth of Jesus. But from our perspective, we look back and we see all of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. We look back on all of that. And so we need to understand how this makes sense in the light of Jesus' death as well. See, the Jews, they were expecting that Jesus would come and bring physical peace to the the nation of Israel. So Jesus was going to rise and he was going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And once he'd done that, he was going to kick out the Roman armies and then there would be peace in Israel. But clearly that didn't happen. The Romans weren't kicked out, Jesus didn't sit on the throne, and there isn't peace. So how is the promise to be fulfilled? Has Jesus failed? Well, put simply, the nature of Jesus' kingdom is different from the, what the Jews had expected. This promise is still yet to be fulfilled. Jesus is the king. It's very clear as you read through this Gospel, Jesus is the king, and as in his resurrection, he's been placed on the throne. So Jesus is the king. But this promised peace is still yet to come in the future. One day Jesus is going to return. There is going to be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be peace, where there will be no one who opposes God and his rule. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the the arrival of the one who is going to bring peace. So how does knowing that help us now? Because it doesn't take away the problem that there are still people who make us afraid to serve God. So how does knowing that Jesus is one day going to bring peace, how does that help us now? Well, the answer lies in hope. The answer lies in hope. These verses give us hope that our present fear of serving God is not going to last forever. It's only temporary because one day Jesus is going to come and we can know for certain. And hope is a very powerful motive for serving in the middle of conflict. If you just think of the person who's living in occupied France during the Second World War, they don't give up resisting in spite of the fear of their oppressors precisely because they have hope that one day the Allied forces are going to come in and liberate them. It's their hope that keeps them going in resisting, even though they have fear. Or the prisoner of war, he's being interrogated for information. He doesn't stop resisting, despite fearing his captors, precisely because he hopes one day someone will come and liberate them. See, hope gives great motivation to keep on serving in the middle of conflict. And in the same way for the Christian, as you live in a world, as we live in the world, where there are many people who make us afraid to serve God. We don't give up precisely because there is hope that one day Jesus will come and he will rescue and sort out everything, bringing peace. So that's the first threat to peace, external threats. External threats from our enemies. But there's a second threat to peace, and this one's internal. In fact, this one's the more fundamental problem. If you look down at verse 76 to 79... We're going to see the internal problem, which is sin. So verse 76 says, And you, this is Zechariah, speaking about his child, And you, my child, John, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah's son, John, he's going to come first. He's going to come before Jesus and he's going to be a prophet. He's going to speak God's word and he's going to prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus and what Jesus is going to do. And what it says Jesus is going to do, he's going to bring salvation from sin. Sin's just the word the Bible uses to describe actions and attitudes that oppose God and his rule. It's the root of our rebellion against him. It manifests itself in a vast array of different behaviours whether that's the blatant hostility of the atheist towards God or the polite indifference of the agnostic, or whether it's just the self-righteousness, self-confidence of the religious person. Sin is the fundamental cause of our rebellion against God. And if you look down at verse 79, you'll see the desperate situation that sin leaves us in. We're told that the world is full of people living in darkness and in the shadow of death. And people who are cut off from the path of peace. Darkness, death, cut off from peace. I don't know if you've ever experienced pitch black darkness. I'm not talking about sort of the quite dark you get in London, but there's so much artificial light around. It's not true pitch black darkness. Um, I remember going away on holiday to Derbyshire with uh, a group of friends um, and one afternoon, we were going on an activity which was a, a tour around a disused mine. Um, and on, the mine's underground; it's really dark. We turn up, we get these uh, hard hats with flashlights on, so we can see where we're going. And as we're going around this mine, about halfway through, we enter this big cavern, and the guide tells us to sit down and to switch off our flashlights. And that's the first time I think I've ever experienced proper pitch black darkness. It's so dark you just can't see your hand in front of your face. It's just absolutely dark. It's oppressively dark. But what was most unsettling about the darkness was the way that it isolated us from the people in the room, the cavern with us. Maybe 20 of us there, but in the darkness you just you feel like they could be a mile away. It's, you're just cut off from them completely. So Proper darkness that isolates us. And that's what the picture is here. It's what sin is like. It cuts us off from other people. It leaves us living in darkness. See, the real problem is internal. It's sin. It's fundamentally what causes all hostility between people. I just want you to imagine for a moment what your life would be like. Would it be more peaceful or less peaceful? If every single person you ever came into contact with, including yourself, always kept every promise, would your life be more peaceful or less? Or would your life be more peaceful or less peaceful if every single word that was ever spoken by others and by you was always gracious and true, so there's no lying, no backbiting? You see, it's what's inside us that comes out of us. That's what causes hostility. Unless that's sorted out, there will never be peace. There can never be peace until sin is dealt with. But not only is there hostility between people, sin brings hostility between us and between God. That's what verse 79 says. It says, we're a world living in the shadow of death. The shadow of death. Death is God's judgment on sin. So to live in the shadow of death is to live in the shadow of God's judgment. See, the problem is desperately serious. Darkness cut off from others. Death cut off from God. And if you realize this, and if you've understood this, then you'll get the joy in Zechariah's voice as he speaks of a sun rising to bring light into the world. Just read with me verses 77 through to 79. Zechariah speaks of uh, someone coming to give people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, this is what we really celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate a sun that rises and shines in the darkness so that we can have peace. Of course, he speaks figuratively of the one who is to be born, Jesus. He is the one, he is the son who comes to bring light into the world. The other day, I was reading uh, an article about a town in Sweden called Karuna. Um, it's the most northerly town in Sweden because of where it's located and, and the way that the earth rotates. Um, in this, this town, you don't get any sunrise above the horizon. Uh, you get darkness, really, for a whole month. From December through to January, the sun doesn't rise above the horizon. It kind of puts the British weather into perspective. It's, you know, it's, it's very dark there. But I want you to imagine that you're living there, and it's December, and you get day after day after day after day of darkness. And then you're suddenly on the brink of the final day, where you know that the sun is about to rise. And I want you want you to imagine the joy that you feel as you know the sun is going to rise, and the light is going to come. See, that's where Zechariah is as he speaks these words. He's about to witness the birth of Jesus, the rising of the sun, the one who will come and he will illuminate the world. See, Christmas is a celebration of a sun rising to give peace to the world. Peace, an end of hostility between us and other people, an end of hostility between us and God. Of course, as we look back on the life of Jesus, we can see in even more detail how he has accomplished this. See, God didn't just sweep away sin, this internal problem, under the carpet of festive goodwill. No, at Easter time, we remember how this rising sun allowed its light to be extinguished. Just for a moment, as Jesus experienced for himself the hostility and the darkness and the death. As people nailed him to a cross... Jesus himself, the light of the world, took darkness and death in our place. But as it always does, light has triumphed over darkness and Jesus has risen from the dead. And now he says you can have peace. That's what verse 79 says. You can walk in the path of peace because the problem has been dealt with. Sin has been dealt with in Jesus. Two implications of this as we close. Two implications of walking in peace. Number one, live at peace with God. Live at peace with God. Look, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never put your faith in him before, he offers you peace. He offers you an end to hostility. So trust him. But even if you're a Christian, I imagine that it can be very easy, because I know myself, it can be very easy, to live as though we're still at war with God. So we can often think that our relationship between us and God is, is still like trench warfare is going on. We're in one trench, God is in the other trench. And the only communication we have is as if we're just shouting across, trying to bargain some peace deal. As if there's still a war going on between us. But Luke chapter 1 says, if you trust God through Jesus, there is peace. The hostility is ended. You're no longer living in trenches. You're embracing in the middle of no man's land. Peace is come. Or we can live as though all that's happened is God has made sort of a temporary ceasefire agreement with us, dependent on how we perform. So the moment we sin, the ceasefire gets broken and war breaks out between us and God again. But that's not what Luke chapter 1 says. It says there's peace, and it's a state of peace that's not dependent on our performance. It's based on God's mercy in Jesus. So live at Peace. Don't spend 2015 living at war with God. God says the war is over if you trust Jesus. Sin is forgiven. Second implication, live at peace with others. If you've experienced the forgiveness of sins, then why live as though you're still living in the isolating darkness? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with other people because of the peace that you've experienced through Jesus. If you know there's someone who you're not at peace with, why not take a few moments to sort it out? Because Jesus says He's come as light into darkness to bring peace. Why start the year in conflict? Should we pray together as we close? Heavenly Father, thank you that into a world of darkness, and death. You have sent the Lord Jesus as a sun who shines to bring light so that we can have peace. Father God, thank you that Jesus has come and brought peace between us and you and so that we can have peace with each other. And Father, I pray that you would help each of us to know this peace this Christmas time and spend 2015 living at peace with you and with others. And thank you for this certain hope that one day Jesus will come and he will sort out all external threats to peace and bring us into a land where he rules as king and there is perfect peace forever. Amen.